Thanks for praying for us, Mark. You know, you think about Nancy and, you know, she has a lot of hope right now uh, facing this trial because she has, in, in the decade or so that I've known her, been somebody who you would characterize as having walked worthily um, throughout her life. Not perfectly, obviously, none of us do, but definitely in a, in a manner worthy of the calling. And that gives her a lot of hope, and it gives her loved ones a lot of hope, and it's a great encouragement for us to, to know the benefit of that fruit at the, uh, at the, in the final days, as it appears to be. So, uh, so we're thankful for that. We're thankful for her walk. Um, today, we're going to be talking, uh, f- you know, really for the next four weeks, as Mark mentioned, through the book of Ephesians, with the emphasis on this idea of walking worthy. And I was really grateful when I heard the elders were saying, hey, you know, pick things that you're passionate about. And it's been neat to hear Bart talk about um, his passion for reading and how that goes into establishing his worldview and, and, um, and Grant going into uh, the book of James and Matthew and seeing the parallels that exist there. And those are the only two that I've seen so far because I've been in BTI. So it's as far back as I can go, but it's a neat concept. And so when that uh, subject was brought up, I was excited because for me, the passion uh, of my time in the Bible has always been Ephesians. And it's been a book that just comes over and over and over again into the forefront of my mind. And, and when I find myself in various trials, I'm in Ephesians. When we're in a counseling scenario, whether I'm the beneficiary of the counseling or I'm giving the counsel, I find myself in Ephesians and, and going to the truths that are established in there and going to the practical outpouring of Ephesians that, that we get in the, the second half of the book. Um, when I look to the, to divide clarity, divine clarity in my role, whether it's as a husband or um, a father or a worker or as an employer or an employee, my role here at church, I find myself in Ephesians. And so that is really, for me, my favorite book. And it just it speaks to me, and, and I love it. And so, um, so that's what I decided to do was Ephesians. And I don't know how to do Ephesians in one lesson. And so I was greedy, and I took four. And then that might have been a little bit much to chew off. We'll see. So, but uh, we've got this one in the books, and we got next week in the books, and I'm studying for the other ones still, and it's, and it's been a, a great blessing. Um, so I started off going into Ephesians with one concept. Dan and I were talking as we were brushing our teeth this morning. I started off with one kind of preconceived notion of how I was going to approach Ephesians. And I thought, because I know the book so well, this is what's going to happen. And here's how I'm going to take it, and here's the practical outpouring I'm going to put into it. And it was neat. The Lord kind of just brought to the forefront this idea of unity. And I can't wait to get into the idea and the importance that Paul establishes on the concept of unity. And I think about our church and how uh, little rifts can occur and how uh, my own selfish preferences can override the love of Christ in our relationship sometimes. And, um, and this idea of unity just kept coming to the surface. And so that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about walking worthy with kind of an overall emphasis on the idea of unity. So if that's all right with you guys, what's the track we're going to take? Since I'm doing it, you guys don't have a choice. I guess we'll find out next week if you're still here. So uh, a little background on Ephesians. Most of you guys know this. Um, but it's good just to kind of set the, set the context here a little bit. So Ephesians is written by Paul, obviously, in AD 60 to 62 to the church of Ephesus. And it was intended really to be circulated not only to that church, but to all the churches in the Asia Minor province. Sorry, I've got dirt in my eye from yesterday still, babe. Gosh, apologize. 
Um, Ephesians were similar to us uh, in a number of ways. The, the, the port town of Ephesus was a major port that, um, that really thrived. So there was a community and, an, uh, and wealth in the town of Ephesus, and there was individual wealth. And, and anytime you have wealth, that can be a huge stumbling block in your life. And so th- they were similar to us in that. They had a very thriving economy overall. They also had a number of gods with little g, over 50 that they worshipped. Um, they made up the spiritual atmosphere of that area, and those gods were woven into the very fabric of the culture and the economy. And the Ephesian believers were saved out of that um, that culture, and they had a lot of competing ideas about the power of Christ, the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And a lot of these folks would fall back into if not outright worship of their old gods out of habit or maybe just kind of peer pressure from their families or those around them, or they were just very confused about, you know, is Christ big enough for this situation? And you would find themselves kind of worshiping both at times, um, leaning on Christ and then leading on uh, these other gods. And I think we do that a lot of times out of ignorance or fear. We fall back on our own Gods, whatever they, those idols might be, whether it's our own wealth or our own street smarts or our own just kind of fortitude, and we forget about the power of God. And so I look forward to looking at that with you guys. Chief among the gods that the Ephesians um, worshipped was Artemis or Diana, and you guys are probably familiar with, with this god. Um, they had a temple dedicated to her. It was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, so it was a massive component of the, of the uh, culture there. Her face was on the money. I mean, it was everything was woven into that, into worshipping her. And so a lot of parallels exist to our culture, some that I've mentioned, but um, some of the bigger concepts, things like idolatry, polytheism, the worship of many uh, gods or religions, self-worship, peer influence, class influence, all those types of things uh, were very real in the life of the young Ephesian church, and they're very similar to ours. Those pressures exist for us, and I think that's one of the reasons why I find myself going back to it is because I can relate uh, in a lot of ways. And so there's a number of themes. I forgot I was supposed to do this. That's kind of a picture of, of Ephesus, uh, an artist's rendering. But there's a number of themes that can be um, recognized from this book. A couple of them. One, MacArthur in his study Bible, uh, he introduces it and says, Ephesians is a letter of encouragement and admonition written to remind believers of their immeasurable blessings in Jesus Christ. And not only to be thankful for those blessings, but also to live in a manner worthy of them. And so we're definitely going to uh, relate to that. Simon Austin, uh, in his commentary, said, so, And so Ephesians does have a single theme from which many implications flow. A theme of what it means to be the church in Christ, reconciled and raised with him. And, w- and what that new community created in the heavenly realms should look like on the earthly realm. And I like how he says that where it's an aspirational, but then what does that look like right here where we are now? And so I like the duality of that that Austin puts in there. Sorry, guys. I should be advancing these so you can read them. Um, and then Clinton Arnold, uh, who, by the way, we'll be referencing a lot for this message, uh, his commentary said that, by the way, we, wouldn't re- we would not uh, agree on with Arnold on his ideas of um, gifts he is not a, sensation, a cessationist, and so we wouldn't agree with him on some of those aspects, but he's got a great commentary on just the, the overall um, 
uh, development of the Greek and and really speaks well to a lot of the applicational things that apply from this book. But again, we wouldn't agree with him on all things. But he says, Paul wrote this letter to a large network of local churches in Ephesus and the surrounding cities to affirm affirm them in their new identity in Christ as a means of strengthening them in their ongoing struggle with the powers of darkness to promote a greater unity between Jews and Gentiles within and among the churches of the area and to stimulate an ever-increasing transformation of their lifestyles into a greater conformity to the purity and holiness that God has called them to display. It's a mouthful, but I think it's absolutely dead-on accurate. And so our focus will be on this idea of walking worthy. And a couple of questions, just to kind of get our minds thinking here on our own walk, our current walk, would be what does our our life look like as professing believers? What are the realities of our new life in Christ? Based on all that God has done for us, what will our response be? How will we treat one another? How will we practically work out our salvation in our given roles and giftings that God has providentially placed us? And then after close examination of our lives, after we've taken stock of our current walk, what are those areas of our life that we'll need to put on? And what are those spiritual attributes that we'll need to, I'm sorry, put on? And what are those, those parts of our life that we'll need to put off? And so we'll get a little practical as we go into the, uh, the third and fourth uh, sessions on this. So a little teaser for you guys. If you like practicality and, and application, those last uh, two messages will really be on, on that. This particular piece is going to be foundational just for establishing really what Paul uh, is hoping to convey in the overall book. And then, um, and then we'll go in next week into some of those foundational truths that drive, really drive us to our knees in humility when you think about what God has done for us. The first three chapters is just, um, is really just critical to understanding how you will even access the power to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so let's jump in a little bit here. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. If somebody would like to read that for me, nice and loud, I'll let you do it. Any volunteers? We'll call on you. I do allow ladies to read God's Word, just so we're clear on that. There's a little confusion there. Thank you, sir. Perfect. Thank you. And so we're starting at the middle here in in the fourth chapter, really because this is the pivot point of the whole book. Uh, Paul spent the whole first half of the letter establishing his readers' new identity in Christ. And Paul is now exhorting them to live lives in a manner that reflects the new identity he just referenced. And so we're going to look back, as I mentioned, uh, to one and two in some detail next week in order to establish the proper foundation for this uh, exhortation. But uh, for now, I think I have, yes, uh, that's a picture of foundational stones, in case you're wondering. It was a hard thing to find, more so than I would have thought. So that's, I felt like I need to show you why. So these truths are obviously foundational for our application. And so um, we need to understand that the therefore that he starts off there with, the therefore reaches all the way back to some identity-forming truths 
and 1 through 3. And some of them, certainly not all of them, are that we have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ, that the Jews and Gentiles together form one new person in Christ, a hint at unity there, that we are the new covenant temple that God fills with his presence, that we have been joined to him in his resurrection and exaltation. We'll look at depth at that piece next week. And that we have been saved and redeemed from every form of evil and many, many more. But those are some of the foundational truths that Paul says, based on all that, you got to do something. Right? There's got to be something that evidences that in your life. And so it's on this basis that Paul exhorts us to change our behavior. And in Paul's economy, the way that he thinks... And, and through him, the way we see a revelation of God's mind working here, and this is truth all throughout the Old Testament as well, is that a changed life comes before the good behavior. It was the thing that the Pharisees wrestled with. It was the thing that the Jews have always wrestled with, is that this external act will somehow gain merit. And as we know, it's really that they never had the saving faith that, that, that motivated them towards those acts that God so really wanted from them. And so the changed life comes before good behavior. And then the new identity in Christ is what produces the good works. So it's the, those foundational truths that we see up there that are the basis for everything that God, Paul is going to ask us to do um, in the next session. So let me go back. So we have this just kind of as a reference point. So to walk worthily, it's, it's comprehensive. And that expression encompasses how people live in every aspect of their daily lives. And the Old Testament metaphor, that is is really a metaphor for conduct, how the Jews would conduct themselves. And and the Lord uses this idea of walking throughout the Bible. Paul says the basis of the appeal is not on their calling, um, is on that of their calling. So the calling to which you have been called. And remember, this calling is God's invitation or summons to enter into a relationship with him. And this is critical. So much like God called Abraham and Israel to be his people, God's calling is closely related to the idea of his predestination and election. I know that we're all very familiar with that here. Um, But Romans 8.30 speaks of the sequence of our election, which I think is really neat. So those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified, according to Romans 8.30. So this calling is to a relationship with God through Christ, in which he bestows an abundance of blessings on us. Some of those are redemption from the bondage of sin, participation with Christ in his resurrection and his exaltation, a new life, nearness to God, incorporation into a whole body of folks who are redeemed just like you are, a a mission to fill the world with the good news of God's grace. Recall that the only reason we are all even here drawing breath is to go fill the world with the good news of Christ. And if we're not doing that, we're basically just taking up space. Right? So something to think about in that mission is so critical. And so then people respond to God's calling by believing and living a life of what? Of obedience. That's when Christ said, of those, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And Paul's not being original here. He's just putting some more context to the idea of obedience. And so then he says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience. And so God's calling is not to a private relationship with him, 
but a life in community with other believers. And so we're getting to this idea of this unity. And so there aren't very many things that are more uh, destructive to community life than pride, right? There's not many things that will tear away your relationship than arrogance. Those are the things that, that destroy. We want to put off pride and arrogance, and we want to put on humility. And God has always despised pride, and this is something that, you know, that I look in the mirror and I see my own areas and where I have the most trouble and where I have the most significant rifts with other people or my own home. It's my own pride that rears its head, and so uh, Paul hits it on the, on the head here. But God has always despised pride. In 1 Peter 5, 5, he says, All of you clothe yourselves in what? In humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this idea of gentleness that Paul is talking about here, it's not implying weakness. In some translations, it's meekness, right? And that, I don't like meekness because it's too easily misconstrued into this idea of, of being weak, and it's not that it's, it's power under restraint, I think I've heard Steve say from the pulpit, right? It's, it's self-control. It's a tempered spirit that, um, that Paul is talking about here. And it's an important trait of all the members in the community, or we can say the body of Christ, as Paul will say later, to develop for living together and working with one another in harmony to achieve the goal of glorifying the Lord. Um, when there are difficulties with one another, it is gentleness that is essential for restoring someone who's in error um, or correcting somebody. It's in gentleness that you'll have that attribute that will allow the truth to be heard so that person might be restored. We can be right in pride and arrogance, and it cuts off the truth from people's ears. And so I've heard Gabe for years say, we want to we want to be attractive in the way that we present God's word. We want to be compelling. And how do you be compelling and make the word of God attractive? Well, it's through gentleness that you do that, that Paul is admonishing us to do here. Anger is damaging to relationships within our body. Rage, bitterness, slander, a spirit of vengeance, all these things are destructive. And so that's where you start saying, let me do an a, a inventory check of my own predispositions, my own tendencies when I'm in error or when I am uh, feeling very puffed up. Am I on that list? Am I rageful or bitter or, or slanderous or do I have uh, vengeance? Because those things are destructive. And Paul repeatedly warns against these, not only in, in Ephesians, but throughout his, his letters. And so he identifies, though, the antidote to these sinful dangers, and it's patience. It's patience. It literally means a long time, right? God has repeatedly shown to be long-suffering and slow to anger. Exodus says God revealed himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. And so we see a tie into God's character that if one is slow to anger, is patient, there's also an expression of love and faithfulness in that. And God exhibited that in the way he presented himself to Moses. And then finally, he says, by putting up with one another in love. And putting up with, I love that, because it's really, uh, it's this idea of enduring. It's bearing with. 
somebody. And so Paul here is urging us to have an attitude of love in tolerating the faults. Hey, guess what? This is just a a quick uh, reminder and just truth check. You guys all have faults. All right. In case you didn't know, and so does the guy next to you, and so do I, and everybody else. And so how do we exist with one another? Well, part of it's being humble and recognizing that you don't have it all together. And part of it's being gentle and how you come along other people and being persuasive and how you present truth. And part of it's being patient. It's, hey, your preferences don't have to win all the time, Right. Other people's preferences can come through. And so that's the idea. You put up with one another in love, tolerating the faults and sometimes the grating personalities and quirks of other folks in the church. God's called us all to that. And the one thing that binds us together, we'll look at this a little bit more in depth, is a common faith. It's Christ. So all of that, really, I feel like, a really uh, bad version of MacArthur. And he does this huge intro and he says, well, now that and now verse one, right? And so all of that is to lead us to this one question then for this, uh, for this time together is why is it important to walk worthy? Why is it important to walk worthy? And really in one word, oops, I'm going the wrong way. Sorry guys. In one, in one word, it's unity. It's unity. Paul is urging us to maintain the unity that already exists in the body God has created. And so it's interesting that he's not saying, go get unity, go find unity, chase after unity. He's telling us to maintain the unity that already exists. So we already have it, which is a great sense of hope for us because we don't have to go search for it. We've already got it. We just need to access it. And we need to seek it out in our own lives and to find the truth that exists already. And this unity is essential and a natural byproduct of the common faith that you and I already confess. It's the byproduct of that. It's manifested through developing selfless virtues associated with selfless love. And so when he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace— God has formed the church into a unified body that um, is indwelled by his spirit. And so we, and again, uh, I jumped ahead a little bit in my notes here. We might uh, think that he's striving, encouraging us to strive to attain unity, but we already have it. The unity and peace are two of the central achievements of Christ through the blood he shed on the cross. And unity, uh, let's see, God created one new man in Christ, thus making peace, Ephesians 2.15 tells us. Christ is our peace who made both groups one. So he brought two groups together in 2.14. And then God dwells in this new humanity by his spirit and gives us access to the Father also in chapter 2. And so we've already got this unity that's accessible to us. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So this stress on unity starts to take shape in this next section here. He says uh, one seven times in just three verses. This idea of being one. 
And that repetition is in a context of stressing unity. And it's reminiscent of, if you guys remember from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, where he prayed four times that God will make his followers one after he leaves, after he has gone away. That he is, wants people to be unified based on everything that he's getting ready to do. Everything he's done in his ministry already, but his central work is about to come to fruition when he dies on the cross. And he knows he's going to have victory and a resurrection. He knows he's sending the Holy Spirit to indwell and empower his people. But what is his prayer? What is his big thought that he wants to leave with the people who are left here? It's to be unified because he knows what tears away the fabric of our body is disunity and achieving, trying to achieve our own selfish ends. And so that's what Paul's trying to give context to, what, what Jesus already started back in John. Um, this one body concept is also affirmed in 2.16, uh, that he might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross he also mentions in 2.22, one spirit who incorporates believers into one body and the spirit now fills the church as the new covenant temple. And I tell you, I didn't ever read Ephesians this way before. And this whole idea of unity in one just jumped out when I was going through my study on this. And, and so I've, hopefully you guys like it as much as I do, but it, um, it's really that the Holy Spirit marks believers as God's property and is a deposit on our future eschatological eschatological thank you <laughs> inheritance it's it's all bound up in the whole redemptive plan in our lives and really that is our commonality and so why are we chasing after these little ends when we have this big picture truth that we can fall back on that's the idea and so then finally this leads to our hope of uh, one hope of our calling that we eagerly anticipate uh, this hope is rooted in God's provision of salvation, but also in a certain expectation that we'll inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he talks about in five five that we're going to have an inheritance. And so our response then as believers to God's call has resulted in our sealing with his Holy Spirit in our incorporation into one body. He says, whereas once we were without hope, we now possess hope because God has graciously reached down to us and called us to be his own. And so that is the basis for which we are to, to have this unity that Paul is just really just grabbing you by the ears and saying, stop being so self-centered and self-focused and focus on what God has already done for you. And then we'll look at a little bit tomorrow or next week as that should just drive us to our knees in humility, which will be the basis for our ability to be unified and get off of self. And so um, we're gonna we got a big section of scripture here. We're gonna jump into. I put it up there just so we had a reference point. But uh, Gabe, would you mind reading that big old section there, uh, seven through sixteen? Yeah. 
perfect. Thank you. And so now this concept of unity and this walking worthy starts to take shape a little bit where Paul starts to give us a little bit of context in what, how we're going to go about doing this and accessing the power that we have. Um, and this call to unity here is displayed as the body of Christ. It starts getting a shape in a, in a context, and that is the body of Christ for which Christ is the head. And so the main idea here is that our Christian community, our body, is essential for growth to maturity because Christ has sovereignly empowered every individual with special abilities to minister to all other members. And so it's the, the responsibility we see here of uh, our gifted leaders to equip the members for a life of service. And that's why the context of the church is so critical. The goal is to help all believers grow into a knowledge of Christ and the core doctrines of truth. And he calls that maturity. To, a mature, to mature to greater Christ-likeness. To manifest love for one another in the life of the community of believers. And so in 4.12 through 14, he says, "...to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So Christ has given leaders to our church to in, that invest their time in, heavily in, in, in developing and preparing fellow believers, that's us, to engage in the ministry of the body. And this is why we need to, by the way, protect our pastors and our elders from some of the trivial stuff, the, the floor color and the wall color and, and all that stuff. Why? Because this is their charge. They are equipping us to be mature, to be men and women of the faith and not children. And that's a, that's a critical component. They have this responsibility to help us reach the goal that Paul is stating here to attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And that is part of their charge and have been especially equipped and called to do that. We are to be a mature corporate body uh, to the measure of the stature of Christ's fullness. And so Paul has this expectation that we would pursue maturity. Another way of saying it might be that, that we are to become more like Christ himself and all of his attributes, all of his completeness, everything that Christ is, we are to have that aim. And so he's given us elders and pastors to help affect that goal. Now, if any of you, like me, at times grow slower, right, we can shed some blame on our leaders, right, if, if they aren't being faithful, Fortunately, we don't have that, uh, that crutch to lean on here. And so most of the time, though, you need to look in the own mirror because we can't give all the blame to our leaders if we're not, we're not developing this maturity. Paul makes it clear that we have a lot of responsibility in our own sanctification, a lot. He wants all of us to be believers on a path of spiritual formation that leads to this maturity in our faith. We are to be like him blameless, holy, and perfect. And so if any of you are spending time with one another recently, you know that we're not there yet, right? <laughs> Far from it. So we're not going to have it completely on this side, but, the, I, but we will have it completely when we are glorified. 
But the idea of resting on that, I think sometimes is a little too easy for us to kind of be okay with where we say, you know, I'm, I'm not going to ever attain to that, that perfection. And, uh, you know, I know 80-year-olds who, you know, are still fighting sin. And, you know, what hope do I have? And that is not what Paul encourages us. What Paul, more than encouragement, exhorts us to do is to get in the fight. Get in the fight. Saw Top Gun recently. Going off script, babe. Watch out. And, you know, Maverick gets a little rattled, right, because Goose, you know, dies in the drink. You know, after he has the ejection, right? And at the end, they got these MIGs and, and his Rios saying, get in there. Get in the fight. He's like, oh, no, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good, you know? And he won't engage, right, Tony? He won't engage. And that's what we do a lot. So Paul is saying, get in the fight. Get in there. And he's going to tell us exactly how to do that in 6, where he puts, tells you to put on the spiritual armor, strap in and get in the fight because most of us are being like children who are being tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine and we have no foundation or basis to stand on because we're not doing the hard work. And that's the reality of it. And so we have a lot of work to do here. Uh, Even though we will not completely be like Christ on this side of heaven, there is much to be done and we shouldn't be resting on our laurels. So uh, he goes on to say, you know, we should no longer be like children tossed around by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine. Um, so maturity then is essential because it results in stability. Um, sorry, I have my notes there. I'm good. All right. Uh, when Paul speaks to children... It's not in the sense of innocence, by the way. Uh, it's the idea of immaturity. It's vulnerability. When we think of our kids, we have grace with our kids because they don't know everything yet, right? And so we're teaching them and we're bringing them along and they make a mistake. We say, okay, here's the right way to do it. But we also have this very real sense of their vulnerability, don't we? We know that somebody bigger and stronger there can just come and snatch them up at will. And they can't do anything about that. And so what do we do? We keep our eye on them. We watch them. We instruct them about things to look out for and potential dangers. And what do you do if you're in trouble, right? And all these things that we do with our children, our grandchildren. And so that's the idea that Paul has here is that it's not an innocence of thought. It's that you're, you're immature and you're vulnerable when you're immature. And so get going on your path to maturity is what he's saying. Uh, without firmness and stability that comes from this growth, believers are as vulnerable as a boat that's being uh, tossed here and there adrift on a stormy sea. And so, you know, one of the things I'll say, you know, just from my own thought process too is, you know, there are times where I act like a 40-year-old child. Are there times in your life, are you acting like a child now in certain areas of your life that you need to address And if you don't know what areas those are, ask your husband or ask your wife, and they'll know, right? They'll know very well. You keep doing the same dumb thing over and over again, and that's probably where you're acting like a child. So grow up. That's what Paul says. Grow up. And you go and do something about it. Um, So, you know, my question to you guys is, you know, what are you doing to become mature in your faith? We see here that if our walk is to be worthy, it must be set on a course that is directed toward growth and maturity in the truths of God, of who God is, rather, and what he has done throughout all of redemptive history. 
What are you doing to become more mature? <laughs> Poor James. Um, are you resting on the work that maybe you did 20 years ago? Was your walk really vibrant 10, 15, 20 years ago? And you're involved in three different Bible studies, and you had an accountability partner, and you were in the 5 a.m. club. I remember Stacy and I used to be in the 5 a.m. club, and you know, and you're a really vibrant walk. Well, are you resting on that time in your life, and now you're in utter sin because you're just not walking? Or maybe you're not in utter, utter sin, but are you, are you just not useful, right? You know, Satan doesn't necessarily need to derail you and, 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 and put everybody in hell, right? That's not the goal. Satan is just great if you're just sidelined, if you're just out of the fight. Right? If you're like Maverick on the side, you can't blow up the MIGs because you're not engaged in the fight, Satan's great with that. Right? And so that's the idea. Are you, are you resting on that? Are you resting on Sundays alone? Are you coming to church faithfully every Sunday and you say, oh, that's enough. That's good. Steve's great. He teaches well. I'm learning more than I ever have. And you just go Sunday to Sunday. Are you doing anything in between? Are you challenging yourself you know, daily and weekly? Are you, are you around people that build you up and encourage you? Are you reading? Are you putting yourselves in situations to be challenged spiritually? These are things that, that lead to this maturity because maturity doesn't happen by just being complacent and letting life happen around you. And that's what Paul, I think, is, is trying to convey here. And so then we move on here to 4.15, the back half of 15 to 16. And he says, Who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped? When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so in order to properly orient us, Paul explains that the head of the church excuse me, the one whom our elders and pastors report to is Christ. Just so there's no mistake who our leader is, it's Christ. The identity and function of the one uh, to whom we grow is Christ. Christ is our leader and the one who nourishes and supplies all that the body, us, needs for its growth into maturity. So again, Paul says we already have everything we need. You just have to go do it. So the church not only grows into a Christ-likeness, but it also gets its ability to do so from the resurrected and ascended Christ. That's the great symmetry of redemptive plan of God, is that he has done it all. And by the way, what does that do? It drives us to our knees so that we're humbly approaching these things, because we don't, we don't have squat to do to make it all uh, worthwhile. It's nothing of our own doing. And so that's the why Paul spends the whole first three chapters driving home what are the common principles and the commonalities in our faith that we have. And the big stress on that is you didn't do anything. And so you realize then that you owe Christ everything. And you certainly owe him the unity that he has uh, required of the members of his body. You owe it to him if you are going to be an arm or a leg or a foot of Christ's body to do your job the best way you can. You can't have, you know, Gabe's this foot and he's running, you know, like a 4-4 and then I'm over here on this foot, you know, running like a 10-second flat 40 and dragging the whole thing. We'll be going in circles. 
And you see that a lot in your life. You go in circles because you have members of the body who are not doing their part to the fullness of what God's called them to do. And so that's the idea here. Um, Paul's vision for the church is that each member of the group will contribute to the growth of the body, which leads the whole body, not just the individual, but the whole body to maturity. And this is beyond personal growth because the entire body here is in view in this section. Because Paul um, is talking about this body of Christ. It's the worldwide church, but then it's the individual church of which we're all a part of. And it's the individual relationships that we find ourselves in in our own sphere of influence, whether it's at work or it's in our families or what have you. It's all those things that we are to perform in which the way the Lord has placed us sovereignly, by the way, into those scenarios. And so you, your only response is to go be obedient to that call and to do it to the best of your ability. And then finally, Paul reminds us of the importance of loving relationships within the church. And he says, build itself up in love. Of course, this love is only possible because Christians have been rooted and established in Christ's love if we can look, if I can have somebody read Ephesians three seventeen through 19 for me, we'll see a little glimpse of this love. Three seventeen through 19, you can grab that. All right, Russell. Thank you. And if I could have somebody grab 1, 4 through 5. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. We can have somebody grab that. Jim? Thank you. And then finally, Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, somebody. Absolutely. And so we see this this concept why do we express love for other people's other people in the body it's because Christ first loved you Christ first loved me he loved me in his predestination and execution of my salvation he loved me before the very foundation of the world we he loved us so much that he was a sacrifice and gave himself up for us and those are the ways that we are to model that love and the the love that we exert in in our community is modeled by that and it's reminiscent if we are to go and say this is all that christ has done for me this is how much love he showered on me and i have a really solid foundation of that knowledge and then i turn and i refuse to extend that loving grace through gentleness and patience and humility to somebody else well, then you're no better than the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew, 
right? Matthew 18, 21 through 25, where you remember that he had 10 talents that he was, that he was uh, tasked with repaying and he fell on his face in front of the king and, and the king said, you are forgiven everything. And then he goes away from that scenario and he goes out in the street and sees a slave that owes him a day's wage, right? And he shakes him and chokes him by the throat and says, give me the money. And he throws him in the debtor's prison. That is you, folks. If you are knowledgeable, and you all now are, you're accountable to it. Sorry. Right? Now you're all knowledgeable of that. And you go withhold that love and you slander somebody else, and you bitterly harbor thoughts in your head about somebody else, and in your heart about somebody else, then you are that servant who would not forgive when he'd been forgiven so much. You have been loved so much, and yet you withhold. That's what Paul is really starting to hone in on our hearts, isn't he? And so we also remind that love is a social virtue. It can't be seen by living in isolation. So for some of our, uh, our friends and brothers and sisters who want to just grow on their own and say, hey, I'm listening to MacArthur on the, on the website and I'm doing my own thing, that's not the model that the church was founded on. That is not the body of Christ. It can't be gained at the expense of community. And so Calvin said, that man, the man who would seek to grow on his own and build him own, his own self up, that man is mistaken who desires his own spiritual growth. For what would it profit a leg or an arm if it grew to enormous size? You say, well, what, what good is that one piece if it's not part of a body? If it's just a, a really nice-looking Arnold Schwarzenegger-type arm laying on the ground, detached from the rest of the body, it's useless, Right? And that's the idea. You can't do it on your own. So Paul not only envisions a body of proportional growth, but a body cannot grow without all believers receiving gifted input from other members of the body. It's a community effort. And so when I see Bob falling down in some way, I come alongside him. And when he sees my kids not doing the things that they profess as, as, as children of the Lord, then Bob comes alongside of them and encourages them and strengthens them and builds them up. And it's the community that allows all this to happen. Because if you do it on your own, what do we know about sin? It loves secrecy. It loves a dark spot to hide itself where you can just kind of remove yourself from all accountability and all visibility from other people and harbor it and grow it and nurture it. And it becomes out of control. And that's why God continually calls us to be exposed by the light. And the best way to expose the light is to do it with one another, to do life with one another. And then, so a couple of practical things then. So, so what? So our first step to walking worthy has to be to understand that we are to be humbly unified in the expression and working out of our common faith with a goal towards unity certainly not the only way we could take this call from Ephesians, but it's so prevalent that we need to be thinking of others in that. So we will go into some detail, as I mentioned next week, about the truths that will humbly drive us to our knees and form the basis. We'll really establish ourselves a foundation in some of those truths, and I hope that it affects you guys the way it affected me. Um, But for now, I want to give you a little sneak peek of what we can be doing to to um, put off and put on because the back half of Ephesians really does get into this concept. Did it again, my bud. 
this concept of putting off and putting on. He's going to really get into it in the next section. We're going to depart and go to the foundational, but on the third session, we're going to look at this put off and put on quite extensively. We have to, you know, if we're pursuing humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, love, and peace, and all those things that Paul exhorts us to, then we have to rid ourselves of the characteristics that hurt our fellow believers, our fellow church members, and and that make them maybe defensive or create a spirit of tension. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been affected that way before or you are currently affecting somebody right now in that way. You need to go repent to them. Or at the very least, change your heart right now and start pursuing. We need to put off that attitude and put on some of these things. So if we are quick to get angry, then we need to work on patience. If we have a tendency to be proud and arrogant and egocentric and boastful, who doesn't struggle with these? I know I do all the time. Then we need to work on humility. We need to put on humility. If we are insensitive, if we're bullish, we're rough or kind of bossy or quick to impose on others, and this happens across the sexes, by the way, then we need to put on gentleness. And so the truth of what you're saying can be heard. And so you're not an offense to somebody. So that now Christ isn't being glorified. It's just creating more tension and derisiveness. So if we struggle with being intolerant, of the shortcomings of other people, then we need to put on bearing with one another in love that we already established that has already been extended to you. And so we have these put-offs and put-ons. If unity among fellow believers in our own church is not a priority for us, then make it a priority. Put that on. Because if you're perfectly content being, you know, the person who is divisive, or you're perfectly content not being involved in somebody else's life, then you're not honoring the Lord, and so then you need to put on that pursuit and make it a priority. And then a couple of things just tangibly here, that unity begins by sharing a commitment to a common faith. A confession of faith is central to Paul's appeal for unity, And these are the core truths for which we all believe and we agree on. And this kind of unity that we're talking about here goes beyond any kind of unity found in any other social place you might find yourself. I don't care if it's work or social events or hobbies or or any kind of clubs, even if it's a quilting club, right, which is pretty benign, right? You're not going to find that unity in any of those things the way that you will in the church body. Why? Because it's not founded on the principles of faith that we've all confessed. The things that transcend this world. All those other things that we do, and we devote a lot of time, and I know for, for me, work is a big part of what, you know, I have to do day in and day out. That stuff, you know, I can, the things that glorify the Lord and the, and the ways that I have an influence on them for the kingdom of Christ, those things are spiritual treasure right? Their heavenly treasure. The rest of it's just right now. And it doesn't have that unity that we all have now that is enduring forever. And so we run the risk of diluting this vision of the church when we diminish the importance of the common faith as the foundation for unity. So that means it goes beyond our social economic situations. It goes beyond, you know, we just don't really see life the same way. Yeah, you do. You do see life the same way. You have a common faith. 
And now how you impart that and, and apply that might be a little different, and we have grace to do that. But that shouldn't be the thing that keeps us all from um, being with one another and fellowshipping with one another. And then the unity of believers stems from a call, common calling. So a common faith and then a common calling by God. It's based on a relationship with the one true God who has called us to a bond with himself. And based on his choosing us, then this calling is our opportunity to experience God's grace and mercy and love because he redeemed us, he forgave our sin, we're united with him in his resurrection and his exaltation. And this calling is a, is a new identity and, and it's a powerful spiritual bond that sets us apart. How could we ever go and have a relationship with anybody else outside of this common bond that could be ever, ever be as meaningful? That's why Christ told you to, to, to go away from your mother and father. Your new family is right here. And it's because of this set of principles, this common faith, this truth that God pursued you. How could you ever have a meaningful bond, a bond that's as meaningful, I should say, as the one that we all have? Recognition of our calling by God diminishes our own sense of self-importance. It enables us to cultivate humility that is so foundational to this unity. And so God did not choose us because we were so awesome, right? Sorry to burst your bubble. You didn't do anything to earn it. You're not great at all. I'm not great. In fact, you're downright awful, and that's where you were redeemed from. It represents, though, God's initiative, his unmerited grace on us. And this should be what drives us to our knees in humble obedience to him, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so that's where we're going to end today. Uh, Next week, we're going to go into the real core components of our faith. And that is, by the way, the most exciting part, at least for me, is those truths in one through three that you just go, thank you. That's just the only response you can have. And then what can I go do about it? And then Paul is faithful to give us three extra chapters to tell us what we can go do about it. So, um, so that's, the, that's the goal for the next three weeks. So if you're with me, I'd love to see you guys here back next week and stay with me through the four weeks that we'll be together. And, and uh, hopefully it'll be encouragement to you. I know it will be to me because it's, it's, um, it's been great going through this, but I appreciate your attention this morning. Let's close in prayer and we can, we can get out of here. Lord God, we are so grateful for the truths that you've uh, given to us in just this one small section of Ephesians that we get to dip our toe into. Lord, the pursuit of walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called is very simple to say, but Lord, um, it requires a lot of work, a lot of spiritual sweat on our part, the pursuit of those things, not as uh, a work that would produce salvation, but as a loving, thanking, thankful, obedient response to the salvation we already have. Lord, I pray that we would be unified, that we pursue this. This is a hard thing. This is the, this is the thing that, um, that really requires effort is to seek unity when there are preferences that don't align, when there is sin that, that hurts and wounds us. But Lord, our sin hurt you and wounded you and offended you. But Lord, you still sought in loving, gracious kindness to seek us out. And so we can do nothing but model what you've already done for us. 
Lord, thank you for this time that we can be together. Thank you for all who are here, and thank you for your word that is so clear. We just love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.